Everyone's heard of the Luddites, even though their leader, a man named Ned Ludd, was entirely fictional. When the Luddites emerged in the early 19th century, they invented Ned, an inspirational leader for agricultural workers fighting back against the emerging capitalist industrial class. They lost. But the name Luddite lives on as a way to label those who fear technological change. It makes perfect sense that workers wouldn't want to be on the losing economic side of a disruptive technological movement. The question is, why is one of the most famous early industrial revolution figures from the working class not just a man, but a fictional man? One non-fictional early union organizer that you might not have heard of is Sarah Bagley. In 1835, at the age of 28, Bagley moved from rural New Hampshire to Lowell in Massachusetts to work in one of the new industrial mills that were springing up. She loved working in a mill, but she particularly loved that her repetitive, mindless job gave her time to think about the world. By the early 1840s, her thinking was directed at inequality she and other women faced in the mills compared to male laborers. Factory owners would fire women before they'd fire men, or they'd cut women's wages first if costs needed to be kept down. If women protested by striking, they'd be fired. Bagley formed one of the first women-led unions in the U.S., the Lowell Labor Female Reform Association, in December 1844, and it soon grew to more than 600 members. They fought many, many fights, and there were many setbacks before their victories. But their motto was perfectly chosen. It was simply, try again. Around that time, a new business of sending messages along wires had just opened an office in Lowell. They hired Sarah, and she became the first female telegraph operator in the United States. But with that title, Sarah also became the first female telegraph operator to be paid less than her male counterparts in the United States. That was something she could not live with, so Sarah moved on and the company lost a phenomenal woman. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the changing workplace and how you build a tech company for the future that enables career progression for all genders. This is Nevertheless, a podcast celebrating the women transforming teaching and learning through technology, supported by Pearson Education and presented by me, Lee Alexander. Look at the calendar and you'll see we're not too far past October 26th, the day all women start working for free. The median salary for women working full-time is about 80% of men's. That gap, put in other terms, means women are working for free 10 weeks a year, 170 years after Sarah Bagley fought for equal rights for women in the mills of Lowell, companies still struggle to adapt the workplace to accommodate the needs of all genders. And it's not just about pay. In December of 2014, I quit my job at Barclays and I then spent the next seven months as a stay-at-home dad to my little boy when my wife went back to work. And it was really that experience that led me in this direction. This is Dan Godsall one of the founders of Wamba. Wamba works with everything from small businesses through to FTSE 100 mega corporations to ensure that when their employees start or raise a family, they're supported in eventually getting back to work. When I left my job, my plans were to just spend some time off with Jesse and then go back to work. During my time off, I, I found it very hard to find any of the stay-at-home dads. So I spent most of my time 
with other mothers who were on maternity leave. And about three to six months into my experience, they all started going back to work. And I could see that they were just finding it difficult for a whole host of practical, emotional, psychological reasons. And so I started doing some research and discovered that this was very common. And then when I asked this group of amazing women whether their employers were doing anything to support them to go back, the answer was no. And so I, I just thought, you know, from a commercial point of view, this is, this is crazy that we're letting talented, ambitious, fantastic women, in this case, struggle. You see, you can often go your whole life knowing that something is a problem, but you only really grasp what it means on a personal level when it happens to you. This is, I'm afraid, particularly true of men in understanding the experience and truths of women's lives. Having a kid isn't something that can happen to a company. A company will always have a degree of blindness about what its employees need, not just in terms of making a company a place someone wants to work, but somewhere that allows a person to reach their full potential. If you've got a good line manager who is empathetic, perhaps has been through this experience themselves, then it can be really good. But if you have an unempathetic line manager who perhaps doesn't understand the experience, then it can be absolutely awful. I mean, in, in, and at worst, it might feel as though you're going through a risk management process as opposed to what should be a warm, friendly, encouraging return to work. So we, you know, we work with women recently who have said things to me like, you know, why does it feel like I'm having to apply for my job again? I've been with the company for 10 years. And yet when I had my conversation with my manager before I left, you know, a year ago, we were on good terms. We, I spoke to them as though they were a friend. We had an open conversation. All of a sudden, it feels like they're speaking in code. And there's a HR person sat in the room with them who's obviously making sure that they're doing all the right things. But it doesn't feel like the person that I knew when I left 12 months ago. Right. This is a classic example of how the gender gap manifests in many workplaces. It's not just that becoming a mother is awkward for a company, but the very idea of motherhood seems to clash with the ideology of the workplace and of being a worker above all. Why aren't you putting the company first? What about your career? So I'd say the two areas where we tend to focus our energy are on providing one-to-one -one and group coaching support to people who are coming back to work from having had time away from their careers mainly because they've had children. And, and I'd like to say that um, that we're getting a good healthy balance of men and women, but so far, 100% of our work has been with women. It is more often than not women who will take time out to be the primary caregiver for their child during those early months. And we also try and instill confidence in people in their decisions, in helping them set boundaries and communicate those boundaries, and also in terms of building a bit of resilience for their return, because we know that the first three to six months of going back to work are always the most challenging as you settle into these new routines. Awareness of these challenges can contribute to an increase in the number of women who are hopefully achieving their potential and breaking through the glass ceiling, changing organizational systems to create a more equal society and a more equal workplace. It's really worth digging into these kind of dynamics because they reveal why things like the gender pay gap exist, for example. Systemic inequalities are at their clearest when they're right in front of you, telling you to reapply for your old job.
Welcoming back parents after maternity leave is just one challenge facing employers at a time when the demographics of the workplace are changing. First of all, I just want to say there are a lot of transgender people. The estimate is that it's about uh, a half of 1% of the population. Might not seem like a lot, but if we had a party, it would be a lot of people. That's Jillian Weiss. She's the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund in New York City. Jillian started practicing law in 1986. When she transitioned in 1998, she lost her job. That personal experience has shaped her work since, representing trans and gender nonconforming people who are victims of employment discrimination. She has also worked with a wide range of Fortune 500 companies to address nuanced trans employment issues. But I think the most obvious situation is when somebody has started a job in one gender and is moving to another. And I think that there are many foreseeable issues that an employer and managers and coworkers need to think about. One is when this transition is going to occur. Uh, another is over how long a period will this take place? And what will you say to coworkers and vendors and clients or customers? And many of these issues are not necessarily different from those all workers face. It still concerns health coverage, insurance, pensions. It just needs to be looked at in a slightly different context. You know, how do you go about talking to a client or a customer about someone who is transitioning from one gender to another? And and what if that client has questions or concerns uh, and says, well, I don't want to work with this person. I This is confusing for me. It's not that I'm a bad person. I just, I don't understand this and I'd rather work with someone else. That presents a challenge to an employer, certainly. And I think if we thought about it in the context of race or ethnicity and a client or customer said, well, I don't want to work with someone of that race or ethnicity. It's not that I'm a bad person. I just don't understand them or it's, it's new to me or I'm not comfortable I think most employers would understand that you can't uh, accommodate those kinds of requests without violating some kind of law somewhere that requires equal treatment. And there are many other issues that intersect with gender. Here's Elizabeth Bowie, a UX research for Cambridge firm Sigma. I was attending a conference in which there was a talk about design for older people, and it was called Design for Our Future Selves. And they went on about some of the physical issues that older people face and how design needs to take that into account. And it's been found that older people aren't comfortable with scrolling. And I said, wait a minute. You know, that may be true on average of older people now, but as today's designers, let's say they're 20 to 50 years old, you know, as they become 50 to 80, that's not going to be true anymore. And so there are really two kinds of issues that older people face. One is unfamiliarity, and one is things that are caused by the aging of the body. Bowie's in a group called Ageism in Tech, which seeks to combat what she calls the last acceptable-ism. Her experience and knowledge of design has made her acutely aware of many of the issues facing older people in many companies, She says older demographics tend to get divided into sort of three groups, where there's middle-aged, older, and then old. And middle-aged would be 40 to 55, and then anyone from 55 on up is old, which is a a huge category. And and, uh, is it really constructive to think of aging that way? But anyway, the, the stereotype is that older is older and 
kind of they're all the same. The physical changes that happen, they start in the late 30s. Most people need reading glasses by the time they're in their early 40s. And memory declines, but it's different for different people. It's, we're not all the same. And you can't treat a 55-year-old as if they've got the same impairments as a 95-year-old. What if the workplace of the future wasn't just the one we've been given before, you know, the one that developed through the early 20th century around production lines and gendered labor roles? Far too often, when it sounds like it's difficult for a company to adapt to the changing needs of its employees, the unsaid implication is, you know, this place was designed around a specific category of men, so of course it's not working the way others need it to. Improving diversity in the workplace of the future isn't so much about bending that old model into a new shape as it is companies being able to anticipate and people being able to demand entirely new models. There's a lot of work to be done in this area. And one of the facets of the kind of learner-centered design approach that I use is this notion of user-centered design, which means that you have to understand the people for whom you're designing. Now that's Rose Luckin, Professor of Learner-Centered Design at University College London, which is quite a unique title. Rose says she thinks she's the only one in the UK. But the idea behind her work is to look at how people learn things in a holistic way. Consider their emotional state, their well-being. Don't just think about how well someone can memorize facts. Much of her research focuses on using technology to assess and design better ways of having people interact in educational environments. Now, that's also true of employees and employers. You know, employers actually need to make a huge effort to understand the individuals in their workforce. And I don't just mean to understand the individuals within the pigeonhole of the job that that individual might happen to be in at the moment. And I think this is going to become increasingly important. These days, we mainly advertise jobs with these, you know, set job descriptions, specific person criteria, things like that. That's a consequence of how the human resources machine operates. But actually, that's not really going to work well for the future. It's not going to be a way of bringing in a diverse workforce, because when you pigeonhole people right from the get-go, you're not really open to skills and talents outside the stated criteria. So what if what you need to do instead is try to understand those people in a much broader sense? It could be that they'll have skills and knowledge that are way beyond the particular job for which you're advertising. Uh, It could be just what you need six months from now, but, you know, how would you know that yet? That's a, a feature that I think will become increasingly important in future workplaces, having a workforce who you know really well and who you encourage to kind of fit into different roles within the company as those roles become things that you need. And that's something that applies to Elizabeth Bowie as well. And I think I'm an example of a sustainable career for older women because I had 35 years experience in the U.S. I came to do a Ph.D. Um, I felt energized. Um, It was like a renewal. Doing similar work in a different environment, and that's energizing. Rose Luckin's career path was also particularly indirect. She started out working for a retail bank, and she earned enough qualifications to end up teaching a distance learning course on it. It wasn't until she was 38 and a mother of two kids that she started her first undergraduate degree. 
she'd been living in Sussex, and so it was really only the University of Sussex that she could go to. And so she was looking through their prospectus, thought, oh, I'd better apply for economics because, you know, close to banking, already she knew a little bit about it. And then I flicked through the uh, prospectus and it, it fell on the floor and the page it fell over that was artificial intelligence. And I thought, oh, this looks really interesting. <laughs> I've never heard of it. She applied to study economics, but also AI. She got into AI. So I came into it completely accidentally. I then studied at Sussex and at one point was pro-vice-chancellor and the person who was vice-chancellor was the very man who'd rejected me from economics, a fact that I never let him forget. In a past era, that kind of career hopping would have been seen as a sort of black mark, a sign of a lack of commitment and dedication, perhaps. But as the recent Future of Skills report that Pearson conducted with the British science research organization Nesta found, the way we work is about to change in some profound ways, and not necessarily the ones that you might expect. When it comes to automation in particular, many of those frightening headlines that we've seen in the media might be overblown. The report found that only one in five people is in a sector that will shrink because of automation, which is much lower than expected. However, only one in ten current sectors will grow as a result. The disruption of the new era of automation means people will have to change, adapt, and even jump ship. As Gail Firestein, Pearson's Senior VP for Human Resources, explains, that's something that's already being reflected in some of the generational differences she sees in applicants. She says that so-called bookend generations, like our millennials and our baby boomers, have more in common than people tend to think. They both are generations looking for flexibility in the workplace. They're both looking for a set of experiences, and the perspective on those experiences is broadly shifting. Both generations are looking for a set of experiences that's going to show that they're hopping around in different ways. Someone from the millennial generation is changing jobs every few years, which was not looked upon as a good thing, maybe by the baby boomers, but now it's becoming a way of showing adaptability and learning, because things are happening so fast. And baby boomers now are looking for those same kinds of things. They're looking for experiences, and they may be jumping around a lot more too, or doing some part-time work. Basically, she says companies would be well-served to look at it through that sort of lens, you know, that these generations are looking for similar experiences, just coming at it from a different perspective. That also requires a new set of metaphors for talking about career progression. The metaphor that I like to think about it is more of a sort of rock climbing. You're going up the mountain, but you're moving laterally and you're getting footholds along the way that are the experiences that you gain. And career paths need to be set up or career maps, as we now kind of call them, like to be set up where you can really see these the adjacencies across different types of roles and things you can do. And it's very much important for people to think it's okay to move laterally before you move up, right, to gain those experiences, whether it's, you know, a hard technical skill, some new business, or even working in a different country. So how does the future look to women in tech who are right at the beginning of their career? 
could you please give me some introduction what uh, we are going to talk today? Uh, some, yes. <laughs> That's Malgerzata Schmidt, a junior data scientist at Pearson. Is she worried about her future in a new field that might not be that welcoming to women? No, no. Recently, I was at some workshop with Python, and uh, there I, I met a girl who was working in accounting, and she decided to learn Python and to go to, to this uh, more big data computer science because she is afraid that in the future she will have no work in, in accounting. So, so I think that the place where I'm here is it's a very good place, and I'm, I'm not afraid about the future now. In fact, she says the thing that worries her most of all is that lurking gender divide, an issue which is kind of inescapable still in a STEM field like computer science. There are more men than women, but I don't feel afraid about something because I'm a woman. Of course, when I will be a mother, probably in the future... <laughs> then I will have some break in my job. She admits it may be difficult to balance motherhood with the fast-paced world of data science, but what if the workplace of the future could be a flexible, exciting, enticing place for women, for women of color, for LGBT people, for older people, for all? Hopefully, but to do so would mean that we have to eliminate our default sense about what a workplace is. It's not just about HR policy, as Rose Luckin argues again, because the research we have shows that flexibility will be key in a world where we can't know the shape of the world of work in advance. And that's a sort of onus on employers, but it's also an onus on employees to expect that to be the case, to embrace the fact that they will need to learn and develop throughout their working lives. So, which means for people like myself, I think the most important thing we can do is help people be good at learning. And when it comes to automation, she suggests making people realize it's a friend, not a foe. We tend to assume that automation comes in and just sits alongside individual people. And increasingly, it looks more like automation is going to be not a competitor or robots taking over your job. It's actually going to be automation will make your job change or you'll be working with something automated or some kind of AI or something like that. But we never seem to think about how do we prepare people for that so that they actually understand enough about that automated process with that AI to use it effectively. That's certainly something that's been true throughout history. People being scared of being replaced by machines when what really happens is new jobs are created to work alongside the machines. But if the Luddite instinct never goes away, we can at least try to help people cope with it. Absolutely. It's always fear of the unknown, isn't it? So why not try and make that unknown a little less unknown? Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Writing and editing by the team at Story Things. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer. Executive producer Nathan Martin, supported by Pearson Education, with this episode presented by me, Lee Alexander. For show notes, go to nevertheless podcast.com. <laughs>